Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is the War of Independence, Part 14, Terence McSweeney's Hunger Strike. Now in the last show, we looked at the war in Cork City and County through early 1920, from the assassination of Tomás McCurtain, the Lord Mayor of Cork, to the bitter war in the mountainous terrain of West Cork, and then the bizarre story of the kidnapping of Brigadier General Cuthbert Lucas. In this episode, we return to Cork City in the aftermath of the murder of Tomás McCurtain, who had been shot dead by Crown forces on March 20th. Our story starts in the days after his funeral, which set in train momentous events in the war in Cork, as Terence McSweeney succeeded McCurtain as Lord Mayor of Cork, leading to events that would catapult him onto the world stage when he begins a hunger strike in the summer of 1920. McSweeney's story is remarkable and there's a poster of Terence McSweeney in the podcast shop at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. It's really worth checking out. It's part of a revolutionary series that I think you'll really like. There's also tons of books about the War of Independence there. There's also books about other series I've made. There's pins and posters from the revolutionary period. Now that's all available at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. Check it out now, and it's a really nice way to support the show as well. Finally, a particular thanks in this episode to Aidan Crow and Therese Murray, who always provide the excellent narrations, but I think, as you're about to hear in this episode, they really bring these events to life and add an extra dimension to Terence McSweeney's story. Additional research was by the archivist and historian Sam McGrath, sound was by Jason Looney, and the artwork for the series is by Keith Hines. On Monday, March the 22nd, 1920, Cork City ground to a standstill. The streets were crammed full of people who had arrived in the city to witness the funeral of Tomás McCurtain, the murdered Lord Mayor. The Republican movement over previous years had fine-tuned the political funeral and McCurtain's final act in the unfolding revolution in Ireland was to take centre stage in his funeral, which would become a demonstration of Republican power in his native Cork. To this end, 
The day was something akin to a public holiday in the city, albeit a sombre one. A newspaper reported on the events. All business in the city was suspended, even the newsboys refusing to sell their papers. And while 10,000 people took part in the funeral procession, the rest of the population seemed to be gathered along the route between the cathedral and the cemetery. The cortege snaked its way through the streets of the city, passing numerous important sites, including McCurtain's home on King Street, where he had been shot, and then Cork Prison, where scores of Republicans were incarcerated. The volunteer Piper's Band playing mournful airs followed, and behind them came 200 priests and about 50 Christian brothers. One beer-laden with floral tributes followed, and 20 volunteers, each carrying a wreath, preceded the hearse. The coffin was draped in a Republican flag, and the deceased Commandant's cap lay on top of it. Behind the hearse came the chief mourners, and then followed prominent public representatives. These representatives included the mayors of Dublin, Kilkenny, Limerick and Waterford, who were joined by several Protestant clerics from Cork. They were followed by an estimated 5,000 volunteers dressed in military uniform. While the British authorities were trying to stop military funerals exactly like this one unfolding in Cork, on this occasion they evidently felt powerless to stop it. When the cortege reached Cork Prison, Volunteers acting as stewards ensured that onlookers did not obscure the views of the Republican prisoners in the jail who paid their final respects to McCartan through their cell windows. In total, it took three hours for the cortege to travel to the cemetery, reaching the graveside at about 3.45 in the afternoon. While the general crowd remained outside the graveyard walls, a party of volunteers fired a volley of shots over the grave. Then... McCurtain's friend, the Cork Republican, Terence McSweeney, made a brief oration at the graveside in Irish, telling the assembled crowd that McCurtain's work would be continued and that he would be replaced, and no matter how many people were killed, others would step forward and take their place. McSweeney was referring to himself. Indeed, within a week, Terence McSweeney, a few weeks shy of his 41st birthday, had already taken McCartan's place at the centre of political life in Cork. Seven days after delivering the oration, McSweeney was in City Hall, where he succeeded McCartan as Lord Mayor of Cork. In his first address to the Corporation of the City, he paid homage to his murdered friend, before turning to the war that had claimed his life. In what were iconic, indeed prophetic words, McSweeney told the meeting, It is not those who can inflict the most, but those who can endure the most, who will conquer. These were not just lofty ideals, but articulated how Terence McSweeney not only viewed his role as Lord Mayor, but also the military conflict. While he succeeded McCartan as Lord Mayor of Cork, Terence McSweeney was also appointed Commander of the Cork No. 1 Brigade of the IRA. McSweeney, like McCartan before him, had a somewhat romanticised view of the war, believing the IRA should focus on large-scale engagements, such as barracks attacks, rather than assassinations. And as was the case with McCartan, this led to tensions between him and others in the Cork IRA, a faction led by Sean O'Hegarty, who viewed the war in what might be regarded as more realistic terms. O'Hegarty, known as the Joker, preferred small ambushes and assassinations which played to the IRA's strengths, whereas in larger actions their limited training and lack of experience could show. In the short term, however, while Terence McSweeney may have favoured large-scale ambushes over individual shootings, 
The IRA in Cork demanded vengeance for the murdered McCartan and this resulted in the targeting of several people they believed were responsible. On May 12th, two constables, Daniel Harrington and Dennis Garvey, widely believed to have been in the McCartan house on the night he was killed, were shot dead. In the aftermath of these killings, Oswald Swansea, a detective named in the inquest as being responsible and considered by many to have been the central figure behind the McCartan murder, was secretly transferred out of Cork to Lisburn, a town outside Belfast which was considered beyond the reach of the IRA, given it was a largely Unionist town. However, in what was a fatal error, when his luggage was being shipped to his new address, it was sent through the normal postal system. An IRA sympathiser in the post office noted down that Swansea was now in Lisburn and plans were set in motion to track him down. In the meantime, over the summer of 1920, with Max Sweeney at the helm, the IRA Cork No. 1 Brigade launched several major barracks attacks. On May the 8th, they attacked Cloyne Barracks. Four days later, they burned the Commons Road Barracks in the city. Among others destroyed was the King Street Barracks, which was located on the same street as the McCartan household and from where it was widely believed the assassination had been organised. While the Republican movement in Cork appeared to be going from strength to strength that summer, the toll on individual members was immense. The Crown forces were becoming more and more ruthless and started to issue death threats to prominent Republicans and political representatives of the movement. In mid-May, Terence McSweeney and every other member of the Doyle, the Republican Parliament, received a message in the post warning them that they would be assassinated. It read, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and therefore a life for a life. Now given the fate of his predecessor, Terence McSweeney was already taking precautions about his security and safety and that of his family. He was no longer living with his wife Muriel and their two-year-old daughter Moira. They had left Cork City and moved to a safer house on the coast. In the meantime, the war in and around Cork City intensified. Blarney Barracks was attacked on June the 1st after it was abandoned by the RIC and then on June the 11th, Carrigadrihid Barracks was destroyed. While this was the type of operation favoured by McSweeney, attacks on individual policemen continued as well. The most high profile of these saw IRA volunteers enter a gentleman's club on the South Mall in the city and kill Gerald Smith, the divisional commissioner for the Royal Irish Constabulary in Munster. Now as mentioned in episode 12, this triggered widespread attacks on Catholics in Smith's hometown of Bambridge after his funeral. In Cork, the authorities responded to the killing of Smith with the usual repression that only strengthened the hand of the IRA in the city. Following the assassination, checkpoints were established across Cork. Somewhat inevitably, this led to further violence when three men on their way home, drunk, got into an argument with soldiers on South Main Street in Cork. This escalated and the soldiers ended up bayoneting one of the three, James Burke, who, as it happens, was an ex-British Army soldier. As news spread through the city, large crowds gathered, more soldiers were brought out and riots engulfed the city centre. An 18-year-old IRA volunteer, Jackie O'Brien, was killed by soldiers later that night when he went to help an injured woman. Despite incidents like this, over that summer, the IRA in Cork had clearly seized the initiative. It was they who were setting the pace of events. However, 
On August 12, 1920, the British authorities landed a devastating blow on the Republican movement when they raided Cork City Hall and in the process arrested the top ranks of the IRA in the city and county in one fell swoop. On August 12, 1920, as Lord Mayor of Cork, Terence McSweeney presided over several meetings in Cork City Hall. While these were ongoing, several senior figures in the IRA began to arrive in the building in advance of a meeting that was due to take place that evening. However, they were taken by surprise over the course of the afternoon when the British Army surrounded Cork City Hall. While McSweeney and 11 others tried to escape, they were apprehended and caught trying to destroy documents. Now, in total, 12 of these people were arrested. Although unknown to the authorities at the time, these included the commanding officers of all three Cork brigades of the IRA, Terence McSweeney, the commander of the Cork No. 1 Brigade, Liam Lynch, the commander of the Cork No. 2 Brigade, and Dan Donovan, who was at the time the commander of the Cork No. 3 Brigade. Alongside these were several leading figures of McSweeney's No. 1 Brigade, including the quartermaster, the intelligence officer, the adjutant, and several battalion commanders. When arrested, all bar McSweeney gave false names, the latter feeling that his position as Lord Mayor of the city duty-bound him to identify himself. Also, the fact that he was among the most well-known men in the city would have meant the police probably would have easily recognised him. In the course of events unimaginable today, given the technology at the disposal of intelligence agencies, the authorities remained oblivious as to who the other 11 men were, despite the fact many of them were wanted men. After interrogating them for a day, they were all actually released bar McSweeney. He was charged and brought before a military tribunal two days later. Having been caught with a police cipher and documents relating to the Doyle, which was now banned, he had little hope of being acquitted. He was tried by three military officers, found guilty and sentenced to two years imprisonment. McSweeney, however, was determined not to accept this sentence and had already started a hunger strike with several other Republicans while awaiting this trial in Cork Prison. They were determined to force the hand of the authorities to release them or die trying. Once sentenced, McSweeney, as a high-profile prisoner, was separated from the other hunger strikers in Cork. He was taken from his cell, brought to the British Navy base in Cork Harbour, put on board a submarine, shipped to England and then incarcerated in Brixton Jail in London. While the IRA prisoners in Cork Jail remained on hunger strike as well, press attention quickly focused on McSweeney, given he was an elected MP having taken the seat of mid-Cork in the 1918 election and was also the sitting mayor of Cork. While few Republicans underestimated McSweeney's determination and resolution to see the hunger strike through to the end, some at least underestimated the British government. They assumed that Crown officials would back down just like they had in Dublin earlier in the war in April 1920. However, their policy had shifted since the fiasco over the handling of the Mountjoy hunger strikes, which had resulted in the release of hundreds of IRA prisoners. By August, they were adamant they would not give in. Harmer Greenwood, the new Chief Secretary for Ireland, outlined this policy in the House of Commons. The policy of the government regarding the other prisoners now on hunger strike has been repeatedly announced. Namely, that convicted men 
and men awaiting trial on direct evidence of serious offences will not be permitted to obtain their release by hunger striking. And this policy remains unchanged. Nevertheless, McSweeney remained determined. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now, while his imprisonment and continued hunger strike was garnering press attention, the IRA back in Cork were also continuing their campaign during these months. They still hadn't forgotten the murdered McCartan, and by August, with the help of the IRA General Headquarters, they had identified the exact location of Detective Inspector Oswald Swansea, the man generally believed to have been the person behind the attack on McCartan. As we heard earlier, they had located him to Lisburn, outside Belfast, but they now knew his exact location. On August 22nd, 1920, Swansea attended Sunday service in Christ Church Cathedral in Lisburn, before walking back to his house a short distance away in Railway Street. Just a few steps from his front door, four men approached him from behind. The first, holding a gun that had actually been brought all the way from Cork for the operation, shot Swansea in the head. This was actually Tomás McCartan's personal sidearm. Swansea fell to the ground and then the other three men walked up behind him, each one shooting a bullet at the dying detective. They then made their way towards a waiting car about 300 metres away. However, while all this took place, several churches in Lisburn were emptying out and a large crowd now gave chase. The four men just reached the car in time to make a speedy getaway. However, given the sectarian tensions across the north were at breaking point that summer, the mob instead vented their fury on Catholic homes and businesses in the town. The scale of the destruction in the following sectarian riots was immense. Around 300 compensation claims for buildings damaged or destroyed, amounting to £850,000 worth of damage, were made. That's in the region of £38 million today. While the Cork IRA had taken vengeance for the murdered McCartan, they were largely powerless to help Terence McSweeney, however. While he was refusing food in a battle of wills against the British authorities, it fell to a handful of people to directly help McSweeney. While he was in Brixton jail, isolated from the Republican movement in Ireland and the world's media who were focused on his story, it fell to a couple of people to help him, particularly his wife Muriel and his sisters Anya and Moira. They would take centre stage in the coming months. 
When Terence McSweeney was shipped to Brixton Jail in England, no one had any idea how long he would last on hunger strike. Up to this point, they had been settled within days or a short number of weeks, ending either through forced feeding of the prisoner, a government backdown, or in some cases, the prisoners ending the strike themselves. Most believed Terence McSweeney would be dead or released within a month. When he was transferred, his wife, Muriel, his sisters, Anya and Moira, and then his brothers, Sean and Podrick, followed him over to Brixton. It would fall to them to speak for McSweeney, and from the outset, they were at the centre of an international media storm. Journalists had followed the case from the outset because they expected it to come to a rapid conclusion. The extent of the coverage was truly breathtaking. While the case naturally dominated headlines in Ireland and Britain, it also was covered across the world. By September, McSweeney was regularly front-page news on the New York Times. Even outside the English-speaking world, his story was garnering attention. For example, in September, he was the cover story on the Petit Journal, a Parisian publication. Alongside this, he also had supporters across the world. Independence movements from Catalonia to India were inspired while several high-profile future leaders, including the Indian nationalist Subhas Chandra Bose, the Jamaican black nationalist Marcus Garvey and Ho Chi Minh, the future communist leader of Vietnam, followed the case closely. By the end of September, many were predicting both McSweeney's imminent death or a government capitulation. However, neither backed down, and to the world's amazement, week after week, McSween continued this hunger strike. By early October, he had refused food for 60 days, but it was clear by this point, if something did not give in, he would die soon. A picture taken around this time captured his sunken cheeks and depicts an extremely gaunt and weakened man. The dangers of a hunger strike were made all too clear when Michael Fitzgerald, one of the Republicans who had gone on hunger strike with McSweeney in Cork jail, died after 67 days with no food. Nevertheless, McSweeney seemed in relatively good form at this point. On October the 18th, 68 days into his hunger strike, his sister Anya, who was keeping a diary of the strike, recalled he was well when she had visited him. Terry was perfectly conscious. I was with him from early morning till 1.30pm. He was visited by the priests from Cork, who marvelled at his keenness of mind and at his condition generally after the 68 days fast. However, the prison doctors informed the family that McSweeney was developing scurvy, a condition from a lack of vitamins. They asked his sister Moira if they could give him lime juice, which is a remedy for the condition. She refused, saying they should just ask McSweeney himself. When they did, he refused. The following day, however, it seems the doctors adopted an aggressive approach with him, insisting now he take the lime juice. He again refused, but the experience really rattled the weakened man, and it had a major impact, severely weakening McSweeney. His brother Sean, who was outside the room during this encounter, said the doctors had spoken to him in a browbeating manner. While small, this appears to have been a turning point in the hunger strike. McSweeney's sight was starting to fail him and he became convinced that the doctors were trying to trick him into taking food. While the McSweeney story has been heavily romanticised over the last century, the reality of the hunger strike for his wife, his sisters and his brothers was nothing short of harrowing. After 10 weeks without food, by this point Terence McSweeney had lost the ability to tell 
what was real and what was imaginary. His sister Anya recalled a very distressing conversation she had with him as he became extremely paranoid and she tried to calm him. Anya recalled, He was very strange and restless, but I had no idea that he was on the verge of delirium. There was some knocking going on out in the yard and suddenly he said excitedly, Do you hear that knocking? Do you hear it? That's Griffith's new treatment. That's what he was talking about now. You stay now and watch. Listen, do do you hear? What's the time? Quarter past ten. Show me the watch. I can tell the time more accurately than you, look. (laughs) It's only minutes past ten, it was. And today's Wednesday? Yes. No, I am perfectly conscious, am I not? Yes. No, you think I'm muddle-headed, but I am not. No, you are muddle-headed if you think that. He lay very quiet for a few minutes looking at me, and then he said... Now you are my witness. I am a soldier dying for the Irish Republic. Say this after me. I, Annie McSwiney, do hereby firm that I am a soldier dying for the Republic. Now we will swear that. Have you anything we could kiss? I had repeated the sentence after him and now I held up the cross of my rosary. I kissed it myself and then pressed it to his lips and he lay still. I was called away to the phone and when I returned he was very excited... He said I should not have gone away, that it was very important to note the knocking. Ah, the terror of the doctor's threat had completely turned his brain. In the following days, Maxweeney began to slip in and out of unconsciousness, and the prison doctors began to pressure the family to give them permission to feed him, given he was unconscious. His sisters and his wife Muriel were all Republican activists, and they refused. However... They were left in an extremely difficult position. Terence McSweeney was unquestionably going to die within days if they didn't act. And while on one level Muriel was a dedicated Republican supporting a fellow activist, on a human level that person dying in the bed in front of her was her husband and the father of her daughter. Deciding she had to do something, she contacted the IRA leadership in Dublin. They were about the only people I think at this point who could possibly have stopped Maxweeney by issuing a military command for him to do so. In an effort to convince Cahal Brua, the Minister for Defence, and the IRA Chief of Staff, Richard Mulcahy, Muriel pointed out that Terence Maxweeney would be more useful alive than dead. This undoubtedly left Mulcahy and Brua with a difficult decision to make, to say the least. Muriel's point that he was more useful alive than dead was undoubtedly true on a personal level for her, However, it was not necessarily the case from a political and military standpoint for the wider Republican movement. As Irish history has shown through the 20th century, prolonged hunger strikes can gain their own momentum and stopping them is very difficult without a huge loss of face. This was certainly the case in October 1920. If the IRA leadership took the decision to order Terence McSweeney to come off the hunger strike, there's no way it would not be interpreted as a major climb down. Conversely, if the British government refused to release McSweeney and this resulted in his death, it would be disastrous for the British authorities. His death would only cement the support his hunger strike had built up around the world and paint the British government as cruel. Ultimately, the IRA leadership decided not to intervene. On the 70th day, Terence McSweeney was given morphine and over the following days he began to slip in and out of consciousness, occasionally becoming delirious. Eventually. On the 74th day, Terence McSweeney, aged 41, finally died in Brixton Jail. Back in Cork on the same day, another hunger striker, 
Joseph Murray also died. The international reaction, however, all focused on Terence McSweeney. The press largely castigated the cruelty of the British government. Devastated by the loss of McSweeney, his wife and brothers had little time to grieve. Muriel had to fight an immediate battle in the hours after his death at his inquest as the family feared his death might be ruled a suicide on the grounds that he himself had refused food. The prison doctor, however, crucially pointed out that had Terence McSweeney been released, he would have taken food to save his life so it could not be ruled a suicide and the coroner accepted this and ruled he died of heart failure. After this, Muriel McSweeney fell ill from the enormous stress and anxiety she had endured. She would not be able to leave London in time to attend the funeral and would not travel home for several weeks. You can actually hear a full podcast I've made on her life in the episode Muriel McSweeney, A Forgotten Revolutionary in the back catalogue from 2019. I'll put a link in the show notes below this. But in 1920, it may have been for the best that she could not attend Terence's funeral, given what was about to unfold as his body was brought back to Cork. In the hours after his death, there was some fear that Terence McSweeney might be buried in the grounds of Brixton Jail. There was reason to suspect this. The British authorities naturally feared that his funeral would be a huge show of strength for the IRA and republicanism in general. However, given the support around the world McSweeney had garnered, they had little choice but to release the body, and an initial funeral took place in London. Then his body was brought to Euston Station and put on board a train which set off for the port of Holyhead. From there, his family planned to take him to Dublin for an initial funeral in Ireland, and then he would begin the long journey back to Cork. This was going to be a truly national funeral, as his cortege would pass through dozens of towns and cities in Ireland. However, when the McSweeney family reached Euston Station with the body and boarded the train for Holyhead, large numbers of London police also got on board the train as well. It became increasingly clear that something was afoot, and while the train was en route to Holyhead, the family were informed that Terence McSweeney's body was going to be seized by the authorities in Holyhead and put on board a ship and then taken directly to Cork. When the train reached Hollyhead, appalling scenes greeted the grieving family. A special detachment of black and tans had been sent from Ireland and they awaited them on the platform. The family tried to surround the coffin and Moira McSweeney and the Republican activist Art O'Brien, who was born in London, remonstrated with the authorities. You're going to take prisoner my brother's dead body. You will have to use your superior physical force. However, the police did not hold back and they went on to attack the family. Onya McSweeney told a journalist for the Dublin Evening Telegraph about what happened. We refused to go and clung onto the side of the coffin as best we could while the police tried to remove us. While my sister was clinging to it, one of the policemen struck her, and when my brother tried to protect her, they struck him. A military officer came behind Sean, caught him by the back of the neck and tried to choke him while he was protecting my sister. The officer then threw Moira McSweeney from the carriage, resulting in her falling onto the platform. After seizing the body, the authorities placed it on board the ship, the Rathmore, and it was taken directly to Cork. The family crossed to Dublin, and although the Republican movement were denied possession of the body, they organised a funeral, which was held in the pro-cathedral. After this, the empty coffin, which was used in the funeral, was paraded through the streets of Dublin. A newspaper recalled the emotional scenes in the city. 
The carriages were followed by strong contingents from the Irish Volunteers and the Irish Citizen Army, who marched with quick step. Strong bodies of the Cumann came after and were followed by members of different sections of the ITGWU. Across the world, similar mock funerals were held for Terence McSweeney. Republicans in Boston and Chicago, as well as Newcastle and Manchester in England and Melbourne in Australia, organised similar events with empty coffins. Back in Ireland, after the funeral in Dublin, the chief mourners made their way to Cork, where McSweeney's body had arrived in the port of Cove. In Cork City, dressed in an IRA uniform, Terence McSweeney was laid out in City Hall, where he'd been arrested several months earlier, and an estimated 20,000 people filed past the coffin to pay their respects before the funeral itself took place. It proved a great triumph for the Republican movement. Even some of their opponents in Ireland had no choice but to support them at this moment, given the groundswell of support for Terence McSweeney. These included Daniel Colohan, the Bishop of Cork, who even officiated at the funeral. Terence McSweeney was then buried in the Republican plot in St Finbar Cemetery in Cork, beside Thomas McCurtain. All told, while this was in many ways a deeply depressing affair, it was a resounding success for the Republican movement. While McSweeney's struggle had evoked sympathy across the world, the Republican movement had built on this through a well-choreographed funeral, during which they helped to shape the narrative of how it was reported. For example, the London Illustrated News carried the story on their front page with several images, including a family picture of Terence with his wife Muriel doting over his daughter Moira. This was presumably given to them by the Republican movement. It's impossible to see how the London Illustrated News could have gotten the photograph otherwise. By late October 1920, the Cork Republican movement had lost its two leading figures in Thomas McCartan and Terence McSweeney. But just as Terence McSweeney had said at Thomas McCartan's funeral, they were not irreplaceable. While Daniel O'Callaghan became the third Republican Lord Mayor of Cork in 1920 alone, there were significant developments on a military level as well. The deaths of McCartan and McSweeney made way for a more ruthless and arguably more effective leadership. Sean O'Hegarty, who has been mentioned on several occasions over the last two episodes, had clashed with McCartan and McSweeney over strategy and he now became the Cork No. 1 Brigade Commander. Indeed, the IRA across Cork was becoming increasingly formidable, if anything. The highly effective Liam Lynch remained at large and leading the Cork No. 2 Brigade, while in West Cork, a former British Army soldier, Tom Barry, was rising through the ranks of the Cork No. 3 Brigade. Some of the most bitter fighting lay ahead, and these people, O'Hegarty, Lynch and Barry, were arguably far more suited to this than the likes of McSweeney and McCartan, who held a more romanticised view of the conflict. This was summarised by the words of Tom Barry, which opened the last episode. I was ruthless, daring, savage, bloodthirsty, even heartless. The clergy had called me and my comrades murderers, but the British were met with their own weapons. They had gone down into the mire to destroy us and our nation, and down after them we had to go. This draws this episode to a close. In the coming podcasts, we will be moving towards the most intense phase of the conflict. In the next episode, we'll be looking at how the Republican movement governed Ireland by looking at a forgotten prison which used to operate in Dublin. Until then, Sloan.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.